0: Well, it's good to be back. I I missed you guys dearly, and it is a a privilege to be here filling in for Pastor PJ. Out at um, the home of the Spurgeon Library in um, the Midwest, in Kansas City, Missouri, I heard this story from a pastor. I have no idea if it's true or not, despite going to Spurgeon College. I don't know if it's true, but it's about Spurgeon. Uh, His grandfather was filling in for him in his pulpit. Spurgeon is a really famous pastor in the 1800s in England, and he's filling in. For, for his grandson, um, and they asked him, they're, they're asking him, is it intimidating filling in for Spurgeon? Is it um, weird filling in for your grandson? Probably would have been, but he said something really profound. He said, my grandson might be a, a better preacher than me, but he can't preach a better gospel than me, and so for Whoever's in this pulpit doesn't matter if it's me or Pastor PJ or Pastor Rod or whoever you have. Once uh, the burners and the Gomez's move on to Texas, as long as they're preaching the right gospel, there's nothing, nothing better than that. And so that's what I want to bring to you tonight: is the, the best gospel, the only true gospel. Last night I was hanging out with my dad, and I heard him play guitar for the first time in about five years. Um, I've been away, moving out for college, stuff like that. And I hadn't heard him play guitar in a while. And I grew up hearing him play guitar all the time. And I was actually with a guitar player last night when he came down the stairs with his guitar. And I was like, you know what? He's, he's decent. He's okay. He's not that good. Like, he just plays guitar. You know, he's, I, When I was growing up, I didn't ever play guitar. I didn't do much with guitars. I wasn't around guitar players. I didn't listen to music featuring great guitar playing. So I didn't really know what good guitar playing looked like. But over the past few years especially being here. We use guitars a lot. I've been exposed to more guitar music. I know what good guitar playing is supposed to look like and supposed to sound like. And so despite seeing guitar playing my whole life, I never really appreciated it. And then my dad comes down the stairs with his guitar, and he plays this song. It's like an electric guitar solo that he's learned just by listening to it, and he is shredding. And I was like, what just happened? Where did this come? Like, where has this been my whole life? I looked at the person, and I was like, I guess he is really good. My bad. Um, And I had been living with this guy my whole life, and I never realized how good he was because I didn't appreciate what I was seeing. I saw it. I saw him play guitar. I heard him play guitar, but I never loved it. I never treasured it because it was just, oh, yeah, he plays guitar. But when Now that I, I knew what it was supposed to, what good guitar playing was like, I saw it and I heard it and I was amazed and I, I loved it and I appreciated it for what it really was. And in this text that we're going to look at tonight, Paul is going to be praying for this group of people in the church of Ephesus and he's going to be asking that they would see things that they, they know about. He's going to be saying, if you don't value what you're seeing, if you don't love what you're seeing, you're just going to let it go right by you and miss out on the great delight and joy that you could have if you really cherished what you saw right in front of you the whole time. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm not going where you think I'm going. I'm not going to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I'm going to the section right after, verses 15 to, I was supposed to go to 23, but I couldn't make it that far, so I'm only going to go to 19, because there is too much for me to preach through. So read along with me, verse 15. So Paul has spent this whole section right before it talking about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. It's one really long sentence in the Greek, and then in this next passage all the way to 23, it's another sentence. So the first chapter of his letter is really just two sentences, and this is the second sentence of his letter. He says in verse 15, "'For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints.'" according to the working of his great might. And we'll stop there. I know I'm leaving a lot on the table in the last four verses, but I'll stop right there because this prayer that Paul is praying, he's asking God for wisdom and revelation from the Holy Spirit to cherish, to treasure, to value these spiritual realities and blessings that he just talked about and that we have as Christians through Christ. So this sermon is going to break down into two Easy sections. Uh, before I give you the command form of the points, I'm going to give you the indicative form. That's a fancy word for you, but it's basically going to be why Paul prays and what Paul prays. So pretty simple breakdown of this passage. Paul says, "Here's why I'm praying," and then he prays. So it's pretty easy to follow. But why Paul prays? Look for me at look with me at verse 15. You see that word or that phrase for this reason? That's one of those like linking words. Whenever you're reading the Bible, like therefore, in order that, so that 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 should set off like a highlight in your mind. Okay, Paul's about to connect one thought to another. So whenever you're reading usually a letter, you'll see for this reason, therefore, anything like that. It's an important phrase. So for this reason, he's about to explain something. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So that's the reason. I've heard of your faith and your love. So because of that, I'm gonna do something. What does he do? Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So he sees the faith and love that these Ephesians have, and so he thanks for them. It's a pretty simple application for that. Point number one, give thanks to God when he works in others. Give thanks to God when he works in others. This is a really interesting thing if you stop and think about it, because who, who has the faith? The Ephesians do, right? They're trusting Jesus. Who has the love? The Ephesians do. They're loving the saints. But who is Paul thanking? Is Paul thanking the Ephesians? Hey, thanks for being so loving toward all the saints. Thanks for trusting Jesus so well. That's really good that you guys are doing that. Paul's not doing that. Paul is saying, God, thank you for things they're doing. Now, that's something you could miss if you just read through it really fast, but that's weird Unless you realize God is the one who gives them that faith and that love. Because because God created it in them, that's why, Paul is, that's why the Ephesians are doing that, and that's why Paul is thanking him for that. So Paul is delighting in the faith and love of the Ephesians. He is so excited about it. He is constantly thanking God for that. And even just that struck me too, because what do I delight in or appreciate about those around me? Usually it's, oh, I get along really well with this person or they're really funny or I'm friends with this person because we just, we click really well. What gets me excited about hanging out with someone? Oh, they're really fun to be with, right? I, or we do fun stuff together. Well, Paul is excited about the Ephesians because they trust Jesus and because they love the saints, the church really well. And that's something we should be excited about when we see it in other people too. When, when you see someone trusting Jesus, when you see someone become a Christian, when you see someone persevering in the faith, are you excited about that? Or is that like, okay, cool, whatever. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal, There are angels rejoicing in heaven when someone gets saved. And sometimes we're like, yeah, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. You should be excited about that. Paul's excited. He's constantly thanking God for them. Also, too, are you excited about people loving other people even when it's not you? Because Paul's not in Ephesus. Paul's nowhere near Ephesus. He's in jail, right? He's not being loved by the Ephesians, but he's thanking God for their love for other people among themselves, right? When you think of people, are you thinking, oh that man, that guy is really good at, at loving his small group, and I'm going to praise God for that? Or are you thinking, well, you know, they're really good at loving their friends, but they're not good at loving me, Paul doesn't really care who they're loving as long as they're loving people like Jesus loved people, and he's excited about that. But also, Paul hears about the Ephesians, and that causes him to be thankful. That means someone is telling Paul about the Ephesians. And I think often our conversations are not causing someone to give thanks to God for something. Usually our conversations are very surface level, but someone had to tell Paul, hey, look at the Ephesians. They're loving people really well. Or look at the Ephesians. They're trusting Jesus really well. So that's something that we should be talking about. That's something that can cause other people to give thanks to God, and that's always a good thing. So we should be, in our conversations, bringing things up that God can be praised for doing. We should be talking. Look what God did in this person's life. God has helped this person to trust him so much over the past year, or God has really grown this person's love for the people in their small group this past year. That's something we should be thanking God for and talking about so that other people can thank God for that. But back to, I mentioned this earlier, but Paul is thanking God, and that's because he's, he's realizing that God is the one who created the faith in them, right? It's a supernatural work of God to make you trust Jesus. It's a supernatural work of God to make you love other people. I thought about, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys remember playdates back in the day, Remember when you had to tell your, friend, your parents to talk to your friend's parents to schedule a play date? And um, imagine you're, you're, on your, you're, you know, you're eight years old or whatever, you go on your play date and you tell your other eight year old friend, hey, thanks for having me over. I'm so glad you had me into your home. That'd be kind of weird, because who had you really had you over? Their parents did, right? So hopefully your parents said, hey, thank their parents for letting you come over. Thank their parents for giving you guys you know, gushers or fruit roll-ups or whatever, right? Gushers, that's a, that's a throwback right there. My brother had Gushers for some reason on, when I dropped off at the airport. I was like, why are you bringing Gushers on? Anyway, um, <laughs> where was I? So they were talking about, so if, if you're thinking about this, it's like, okay, you've got to give credit where credit's due, right? If you're just, it's, it's good to thank someone for being loving, right? That, that's good. But what Paul is doing is thanking God for someone being loving. And in your prayer life, when was the last time that you thanked God for things other people were doing to other people, not just yourself. So give credit where credit's due, and give thanks to God when he works in others. But that also means we need to recognize that spiritual growth comes from God, right? Obviously, it's God working in us and through us, but that should lead us to realize the humility and the dependence on God we should have for spiritual growth, whether it's in other people or in us, all right? We can, all right, Apollo's waters, and Paul planted, but God gave the growth, right? So when we're thinking about spiritual growth in general, we should be thinking that's something God does. So I should ask God for it when I don't see it, and I should thank God for it when I do see it, and give credit where credit's due. And that should drive us to prayer, because if you can't make it happen, you need to ask God to make it happen. And so Paul's thankfulness for the Ephesians leads to prayer for them. He naturally, when he sees something good going on, He thanks God for them, and then he prays for them. That's where he goes right into in the rest of verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He asks God to keep working in them. He doesn't just stop and say, great, they trust Jesus and they love the saints. Great, that's all. I'm just going to thank God for that. That's, That's a great start. That is a wonderful start. We all need to trust Jesus more and love the saints more. But he is asking God to do more. And that made me think about, okay, what kind of things should we be asking God for? Usually, when we ask God for things, it's about physical things. It's about the weather. That it wouldn't rain on Nathan's wedding day because the reception was outside, right? We were praying for that, and God answered. It was, it was a good thing, and we should be praying for that. We pray for health. We pray for, oh, my, my aunt's in the hospital, and we should pray for that. That's good. Or we pray for, oh, I've this test coming up, or I need a new job, or we, we pray for all these physical realities, these physical things that are taking place that affect us physically. I'm Emphasizing the word physical because I'm going to contrast it with the word spiritual. Paul, his entire prayer for the rest of this section is about spiritual realities. And by spiritual realities, I don't mean that they're not real. I mean that they are not physical. You can't touch them. You can't touch what he's going to go on to say. You can't touch the hope you have in Christ right now. You can't touch your inheritance right now. You can't touch the greatness of God's power. So these are realities that are worked out physically because heaven is a real place where you have a real inheritance with a real king and a real kingdom. But right now they're not physical, but that's what Paul is praying for. He's praying for spiritual things. And if you read all of Paul's letters, at the beginning of each letter, he's always thanking God for spiritual things, and asking God for spiritual things. Your first small group question tonight is actually going to take you to five different passages. Um, you're welcome. And it's going to be, basically, I literally just opened to different letters that Paul wrote, so like 1 Thessalonians, Romans, Colossians, and I was like, okay, what does he pray for? Every single time, I, he's thanking God for for faith, for hope, for love, for growth. He's not thanking God, oh God, thanks that you, you know, prevented that hurricane from hitting Corinth. Well, that would be a good thing to thank God for. We should thank God for that. But Paul is on a whole nother level. And I think too often our prayers are much more physically oriented. And I think that reveals the concerns of our heart. What you pray for is usually what you're concerned about. And um, we need to be praying for things that really matter. Because honestly, right, if, if you have your, your spiritual realities? Right, if you have the things that Paul just talked about in the beginning of this chapter, if you are predestined, if you are loved, if you are adopted, if you are blameless, if you are forgiven, if you have God's grace lavished upon you, are you going to be okay if if your house gets destroyed in a storm? Yeah. It would suck, but you'll be okay. In fact, you could actually rejoice in that because you have something better. So, Spiritual realities, I would be, go as far as say, are more important than these physical realities because they will last forever than the temporary physical realities of earth. That there's eternal physical realities in heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about permanent, eternal realities that are, by nature, spiritual. And that gets us into the second point, which is what Paul prays, the content of Paul's prayer. It's primarily about spiritual things that he wants God to do in the ephesians so point two i want you guys to cherish god's spiritual blessings cherish god's spiritual blessings you might be thinking i got to my second point way too early in a two-point sermon but if you've listened to enough sermons you should know that means the second point is going to be really long so get ready um We got why Paul prays, what Paul prays. So what is Paul asking for? Paul likes really long sentences, in case you couldn't tell from the first two sentences of this chapter. He also likes putting a lot of what's called clauses in these sentences to make them really confusing so you don't know what his main argument is because you get totally lost in what he's saying. That actually in Ephesians 3, he starts a sentence, doesn't finish it until 14 verses later when he starts it again. If you notice that verse three, or 3 verse 1, it says, for this reason, I, Paul, and there's a hyphen after that because he doesn't finish the sentence, and then verse 14, for this reason, that's him finishing the sentence. Anyway, fun fact, there you go. There's a lot of really confusing things that he's interjecting in here, and so the main point of what he's praying for, I need you guys all to look at Ephesians 1 because otherwise you're going to get lost. So Ephesians 1 verse 17, he, right? So he says in verse 16, I don't cease to think, give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, He's about to say, what is he praying for? Verse 17. That God, and then he describes God for the rest of the verse. So that God, and then skip to verse 18, because that was all extra stuff. So skip to verse 18. Oh, sorry, I totally just skipped way too far. Verse 17, that God, and then you see where there's a comma after glory, that, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, comma, So that God may give you the spirit. And then he describes the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, comma, so that God may give you the spirit. And then what's the effect of having the spirit? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then what's the purpose of giving the spirit? That you may know. And then he talks about what he wants you to know. Hope, inheritance, and greatness. Three things. So the thrust of his prayer is that God may give you the spirit, so that you will know things. That's all he's praying. He's asking God, give them the spirit so that they know things. Now it's a really simple prayer and that's probably why he wrote a bunch of other stuff to make it sound a lot better. But that's what he's writing. God, give them the spirit so that they know these things. Now, that you see the argument of this this prayer, he's asking them, or God, to give them the spirit because he wants them to know God. He doesn't just want them to know things about God, He wants them to know God. And we see that at the end of verse 17 where the Spirit is of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The Spirit is for the purpose of knowing God. And what does knowing God mean? Well, it's kind of complicated. And so before we get there, I'm going to explain what the Spirit does because I think that will help us understand what knowing God is. So we have the spirit will help you see and the seeing will help you know God. So the thing is, is he's asking God to give them the spirit. And if you went to Sunday school or if you read verse 13, you would be really confused because they already have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That they don't just have the spirit. They are sealed with the spirit. They are guaranteed their inheritance in heaven because they have the Holy Spirit. So having the Holy Spirit is a really big deal. And now Paul's saying, I'm gonna ask God to give you the Holy Spirit. It's like, wait, Paul, I already have the Holy Spirit. Why do I need the Holy Spirit again? Is Paul a charismatic? Is Paul a second blessing? Never mind. sorry, that was for Matt. Um, so what Paul is saying, you don't need a second dose of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a a second Holy Spirit in you. What Paul is asking for is clarified later in Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians 5 and go all the way down to verse 18. So Paul is talking about the Spirit right here, and he contrasts the Spirit with wine. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit so there's this contrasting thing there's wine being drunk specifically and being filled with the spirit those are opposites instead of doing this do this being drunk we call that under the influence right when you're drunk you're under the influence of wine you are doing things differently because you have wine in you you have too much of it you're under the influence He's saying, instead of being under the influence of wine, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit. So I want the Spirit to be influencing your actions, influencing your thoughts. Just because you have the Spirit in you doesn't mean the Spirit will always influence every single thing you do. That's why Christians sin. If you go to Galatians 5 now, it's one book to the left. I have to think about that for a second. Galatians 5, verses 16-16 to 18. If you want to hear a great sermon on this in a different language, you can listen to Jose's Spanish church sermon next week. Anyway, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. That was just to stall to give you time to turn there. Um, 16 to 18, right here. But I say, walk by the Spirit. So they have the Spirit already. Christians have the Spirit. We know that. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So there's these competing desires, spirit and flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you could say if you are under the influence of the spirit, you are not under the law. So what Paul is saying in Galatians is, you have the spirit, now keep in step with the spirit. Walk with the spirit. Be led by the spirit. And he also goes there, in Romans 8. So in Romans 8, verse 4 through 8, Paul talks about the Spirit again, and he says um, that uh, God sent his Son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, right? We're not walking according to the flesh, we're not under the influence of the flesh, but instead we're under the influence of the Spirit. For those who, set, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So there's living according to the Spirit is something Christians need to do. You have the Holy Spirit, now live along with the Spirit's leading and prompting and influence. So that's what Paul's asking for in Ephesians chapter 1. He's not asking that they become Christians all over again. Right? They're not rededicating their lives. They're not getting a second dose of the Holy Spirit. It's not a booster shot of the Holy Spirit. This is be in step with the Holy Spirit. God is going to fill you with his Spirit so that you can keep his will and do what he calls you to do. So back to Ephesians 1.17. He's asking God, please give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, which will bring about wisdom and Revelation, to know God, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, that's a really weird phrase because your heart does not have eyes, right? Your heart doesn't see anything. Your eyes see things. So what, is it, what does Paul mean? Well, we do know what Paul means is they need the eyes of their hearts to know these realities he's about to talk about. What he's saying is God is going to give you the spirit so that you can see so that you can know. So seeing is that middle step between the Holy Spirit and knowing. So whatever we're seeing, however that works, that's what we do to know God and to know these blessings that Paul has just talked about for 11 verses. So what does your heart do? You guys know that song, that worship song, really old. Not really old. Um, Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That's where this comes from. God, I pray that I would see you with my heart. Now, what that means, well, your heart, it values things. Your heart cherishes things. Your heart treasures things. Your heart loves. Your heart admires. Your heart embraces. It cares for. It adores things. That's what your heart does. In the Bible, the heart is the totality of who you are. It's not just your brain. It's not just your feelings. It's not just your self-control or your volition or your will. It's all of it knows things, it feels things, and it does things. It is all three of those. So primarily, though, it, it enacts all of them together, and we see this again in Ephesians 5, 19. When Paul is talking about if you're filled with the Spirit, you are going to be, at the very end of the verse, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, all right? I think we all kind of know what that means, right? You're making it with your heart. You're not faking it. It's real. It's genuine. It has passion behind it, but you're also intentionally doing it. You're thinking about it. You're, you're doing it on purpose, right? It's not just an emotional melody. It's a thought through melody. So it's all of that combined. It's, a, it's not just a, just singing because I feel like it. It's singing because I, I know who I'm singing to and I, I love this person I'm singing to, this, this God who is glorious. And you guys went through Philippians this fall. And at the beginning of Philippians, I don't know if you remember, but Paul says he holds the Philippians in his heart, right? And all the girls said, aww. Um, just kidding. That's the passage about Jacob and Rachel where he's like, he worked seven years for Leah and it felt like a couple days because of his great love for her. Anyway, um, put that on your <laughs> Valentine's Day cards. But Paul says, he, I hold you in my heart to the Philippians. And that's just him saying, I care about you a lot. I value you. I cherish you. When I think about you, I think about you fondly. Right? That's what we're, we're doing with our hearts. We're valuing things. We're loving things were embracing them. And a really good picture of this is in Romans 1. So turn with me to Romans 1 because this is a really good picture of people who know information about God and maybe see with their eyes, but don't see with their hearts. So in Romans 1, verses, we're going to look at verses 19 to 23. We're going to see these people who know God But they don't really know god and they see god but they don't really see god so look at verse 19 with me so these people these ungodly and unrighteous men verse 19 for what can be known about god is plain to them it's obvious it's clear because god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. See all the sight language that's going on? God's shown it to them. It's plain to them. It's clearly perceived. They're seeing things about God, but it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It's obvious in creation, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. But that makes them without excuse. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they knew God, but they didn't honor God or give thanks to them. And that's a heart thing, right? They knew who God was, but they didn't honor him with their heart and give thanks to them with their heart. And that's where Paul ends up going. He says, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's a heart issue here. They know God in some way, but their hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they saw God and they knew God, but they didn't really see it because they traded God's glory for anything else. So they needed heart eyes. They had head eyes, but they needed heart eyes. They didn't honor God. They didn't give thanks to God. So they traded God's glory. And now, what's really interesting is seeing is connected with glory very often in the Bible. The best place to go is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'd love if you would turn with me here. I know I'm making you guys work a lot, but Compass Bible Church, come on, guys. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to go to verse 15, and we'll see how far we go. I did tell you my second point was really long, so you knew what you were getting into. So verse 15, so Paul is talking about these Israelites who saw the glory of God in the wilderness, mostly on Moses' face because it was reflecting God's glory. So Moses had to put that veil over his face because they were like, oh, we're going to die if we see God's glory. So put a veil on because otherwise we're sinful. If we see God's glory, we'll die. That's the context. So verse 15, yes, to this day, wherever or whenever Moses is read, so whenever the law of Moses is read in a Jewish, not Christian, synagogue, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, why is there a veil over someone's heart? What does a veil do? It blocks your sight. Are you with me? It blocks your sight. Well, that means Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, their heart is blocked from seeing. They're not seeing things the way they should with their heart. There's a veil over their heart their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now you can see God for who he really is. That's why you don't trade him for anything like the, like the people in Romans 1. They traded the glory of God for idols because they, didn't, they actually didn't see God for who he really was. They clearly perceived things about God, but they didn't want them. It wasn't a vision issue. It was a heart issue. And then in verse 17, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, right, we can see. If you're a Christian, you can see God clearly for who he really is. We're beholding the glory of God. Beholding, that's just seeing. And are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So seeing God for who he really is, seeing his glory, that's going to transform you. That's what Paul's saying. If you see God clearly, you'll be different. You'll be changed. So, why is he praying for the Ephesians to see God clearly? So that they'll be changed. That's the point in Ephesians 1. And we have to do all that work to get it, because it's using, Paul's using these ordinary words like see and know, and he's putting a lot of baggage in them. He's packing a lot in the word see and a lot of war, uh, stuff into the word no. So it means a lot more than you would think it would mean. So you have to see God with your heart. You have to see God's glory with your heart to be changed so that you can treasure God and cherish God's blessings. Otherwise, you read Ephesians 1 and you're just like, whatever, it's boring, it's lame. And maybe that's where some of you are at right now. You totally just checked out on what I was going through because for you, it wasn't very impressive. Because for you, God's glory is dim, or you're blind to it because you're not a Christian, or you're not filled with the Spirit, you're not walking by the Spirit, and so you don't have a taste for heavenly things. It's like everyone tells me coffee is an acquired taste. I don't like coffee because I don't drink it ever, right? So if you want to drink coffee, supposedly, right, you're supposed to drink more and more of it and acquire the taste and whatever, right, and spend your $5 million at Starbucks every year just to wake up in the morning. Anyway. Anyway. Um, sorry, I'm not salty about it at all, but they say it's an acquired taste. You need to learn to like it. And in some ways, spiritual things, spiritual realities are an acquired taste. The more you get of it, the more you like it. But if you're blind to it, you won't like it at all. So Paul is asking, right, he wants God to give them the spirit so that they can see what does he want them to see? Well, we know from 2 Corinthians 3, he wants them to see the glory of God. The glory of God. Not just see words on a page when you read Ephesians. He wants you to see the glory of God in Ephesians. And then, because of that, they'll be changed. And that's how they'll know these things. Well, how do I see the glory of God? Like, what is that? Do I have to, like, go to heaven or something? Like, where do I see God's glory? Well, Hebrews 1, if you remember, or that... Uh, It's either Hebrews 1 or Colossians 1. I'm totally blanking. But it's Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1. Hebrews 1 is he is the radiance of the glory of God. There we go. I went to seminary for a reason. Um, Hebrews 1, the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the visibility of the glory of God that you can see without dying. Well, right now, you probably would die if you saw him because he is in heaven. He's glorified, right? So Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So you need to see Jesus to see the glory of God. All the glory of God is present in Jesus. Well, that was great for the 33 years Jesus went on earth, but then he went up into heaven. Now we can't see Jesus anymore either. So where do we see Jesus? Well, we see Jesus in this book. This book, now, is the clearest revelation of the glory of God that you'll ever find. This side of being in heaven. That's where you see the glory of God. So, and that's actually where Paul goes later in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about how the, have you ever heard Pastor P.J. say that unbelief is a 2 Corinthians 4 problem? He said that a lot in our apologetics class. I don't know. If you guys haven't heard that, that's totally fine. I just thought I'd reference it in case you did. But that's where he gets it from, is because in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So people aren't Christians because they can't see the glory of Christ. If they saw the glory of Christ, they would become Christians and worship God. So that's what we need to see. We need to see glory. We need to see the glory of God in Jesus through his word. Why? Why is it such a big deal to see the glory of God? Because then you'll be changed, and then you will do what Paul is eventually asking. I want you to have the Holy Spirit so you can see, so you can know. And that's really what Christianity is all about. It's all about knowing God because it's a relationship. It's about knowing the person you're in the relationship with. And that's actually where we see the word know used a lot in the Old Testament. In Genesis 4, we see Adam knew his wife Eve and then they had a kid. Knowing in the Old Testament is usually a euphemism for procreation, for sexual intercourse. Knowing because of that, right, it carries that, that connotation, in, when that unity right between a husband and a wife. Right? The two shall become one flesh. There's that unity, the intimacy, the closeness, the delight. It's all there, and that's how it's displayed in knowing each other to the extent that that's, how, that's only for married people. Only married people know each other in that way. And that's the point, is it's this deep, intimate delight and love and care and treasuring of each other. And that's what God uses in the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is a very graphic book in some ways because God tells the prophet Hosea, hey, go marry a prostitute. And she's gonna leave you a ton and she's gonna cheat on you a ton. And I want you to be so gracious with her and always take her back and love her unconditionally because that's how I love my people. And see, in Hosea, God often talks about his people knowing him. In Hosea 2.20, he says, I will betroth you. I will marry you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. So that relationship coming together, that's, how, that's when they know each other. Or we have Hosea 5.4, where it says that um, because Israel is unfaithful to God, they do not know the Lord. They don't have that relationship because they're unfaithful to God. And then in Hosea 6, he goes on and talks about how he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't want you to go do a bunch of things for him if you're not close with him. There's no relationship there. God doesn't want you to... to serve on the worship team or sing a bunch of songs to him or, or read your Bible unless there's a relationship. It's like if I just started buying flowers for some random girl just because I thought I should, right? That's not a relationship. That's not love. That's just me doing random stuff for no reason. And that's what God wants. God wants you to know him. And what Jesus says in John 17, 8, is that eternal life is to know God. He's praying in the upper room, and he says that, maybe it's not 17.8, I probably wrote that down wrong, but I wrote the wrong verse down, that one, That's my bad, but John, in the gospel of John, Jesus is talking about eternal life, and he says eternal life is to know you and the one that you have sent. That relationship, that closeness with Jesus, that's eternal life. That's the best way to live. That's fullness of joy. That's Psalm 16. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's what Paul wants for the Ephesians, and that's what I want for you. I want you to know God to the fullest extent. I want you to know God deeply and lovingly and to cherish him and to have a unified relationship with him because that's so much better for you than anything else you could ever have. Psalm 23, verse 4 even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. God is with me. So I'm okay no matter what circumstance I'm in. Knowing God is to fully live, and it's the most satisfying thing you could ever do. A great way to, to picture that is in Psalm 63, and I encourage you to write that down and go there sometime in your quiet time this week. Psalm 63, passage that Becca's grandfather read at her wedding on Friday. It's about how God is satisfying to your soul. Knowing God, that's, that's life. That's the best way to live. And see, you can't do that unless you see God for who he is. You can't know God unless you see God, and you can't see God unless the Holy Spirit does something to you. That's why Paul is praying. Because to know God, you need to see God, and to see God, you need the Holy Spirit to work in you. And so, to do all that, I have to see God's glory. I have to to know God. Well, I already mentioned this, but that means you have to read God's word because that's where you see God. And maybe you're thinking, seriously, like, this is really going to be about reading my Bible more? Like, didn't we get enough of this over the summer with that whole thing and all, all whatever? Well, If you are in a relationship with someone, I'm in a long-distance relationship, I spend a lot of time staring at my phone, not because I love my phone, but because I want to talk to the person on the other side of the phone. And if you love God, it's not a, a chore to get up and read your Bible because you love the God who's in the Bible, who inspired the Bible, who wrote the Bible. It's not about checking off boxes on your D.B.R. plan. It's, it's about knowing God and loving God and seeing the, the glory and the treasure that is in these pages because God is here. That's what it's about. It's about knowing God. And that's why Paul praised this prayer. Because I know I'm guilty of reading this book and letting it just go through one ear and out the other. I'm guilty of not cherishing these things in this book, right? We can read Ephesians 1, and we we can go through it and be like, yeah, I've heard that before. I know Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's not, I know I'm adopted. I know I'm predestined. I know I'm loved. I know I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's not a big deal anymore. that's a dangerous place to be, and that's why Paul is praying. He just wrote one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible, and he's saying, I pray that you would see it for what it is. I pray that you would really see it, not just read it with your eyes, but see it with your heart and adore the God whose glory is present in these pages. And he gives three things you can know about God to know God more deeply in the rest of this prayer. He says, God, I pray that you would give them the spirit of wisdom so that they can see with their hearts so that they could know three things. The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. If you notice, these are all things God does. They're all God things. They're not things about us. Right? Because we're trying to know God. Right? We're trying to see God's glory. That's what it's about. That's what's going to satisfy. Not thinking about, oh, I'm so lovable or whatever. Right? This is about how amazing God is. And so Paul wants them, the first thing he wants them to know about God is he wants them to know the hope that they have been called to. And so why, why is that a big deal? Right? Well, the hope. In, in scripture, hope is, is more certain than the way we use it in our lives. We say, oh, I hope it, hope it doesn't rain. Or I hope there's not boredom brew tonight at the bridge. Or I hope my flight doesn't get delayed. Right? We use it like that. But the hope in, in, we see in scripture is a much bigger deal. And so I want you to turn to the book of Titus because Titus actually, uh, in Paul's letter to Titus, he mentions hope a lot. So in Titus 1, so Titus is basically the less popular version of Timothy. Um, He's Paul's guy he's going to send to Crete to train the elders there and to set up the church. But no one talks about Titus. Everyone talks about Timothy. Uh, It's a shame. But in Titus 1, verse 2, Paul talks about the hope of eternal life. That's one thing that Christians have a hope in is eternal life. And it's not just, oh, I I hope I make it. No, you have the hope, the sure hope of eternal life, not just quantity of days with God, which is amazing to live forever with God, but also quality of eternal life that starts whenever you became a Christian. Then in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, this passage kind of ties a lot of the themes we've been talking about together. But, I'll just read it from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Because we are waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave, us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In that passage, you see that waiting for our blessed hope? What is that hope? The appearing of the glory of God. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting to see God Face to face in all of his glory. Right now, we're only seeing his glory through words on a page. And it's not even in the language it was written in originally, right? We're seeing God's glory very dimly right now, but we are waiting for the, that day when we can see God's glory in full. That's what Paul wants them to think about when they think about the hope they have. And I think we don't spend enough time thinking about that. Pastor Kellen's sermon last week in main service was about about our future hope. We don't think about our, our hope and how amazing it is that we can even have that hope. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, I, I want you to know that you're missing out. Right, I could tell you that you are going on a path towards a life without hope and your life is currently without hope and you have no meaning or purpose other than being a bag of atoms bouncing around in the universe. I, I could go that route, but I want you to also know you're missing out on the most amazing hope you could ever have. You are missing out on the blessed hope of the glory of God who will satisfy you more than anything else you could ever imagine. You're missing out on that. And that's why Paul wants you, non-Christian or Christian, to know that hope. And not just know it, but know it with your heart. And see it with your heart. Paul also talks about our inheritance. And in small groups, I'm gonna have you guys go to 1 Peter chapter one and read about the living hope that you have the inheritance that you have stored up in heaven. But your inheritance isn't just heavenly rewards. Your inheritance is God himself. That's the best part. That's the best part. The best part is when you get to heaven, you get God. You get God himself as your inheritance, as your prize, as your king, as you as a bride, and he is your husband. That's the inheritance. That is the hope. And that is glorious. Paul also talks about God's power. And I don't know if you remember in Romans 1, he says that God's power is obvious, it's evident, it's clear, it's plain. But that was for towards unbelievers because usually when you think of God's power you think of creation God could make anything with just a word or you think of God's power you think God parted the red sea or you think of God's power you think maybe you think God raised us from the dead right and that's where Paul goes here in the second half of this section he talks about God's power in raising Christ from the dead and seating him in the heavenly places far above all other authorities or rulers or any kind of rivals But Paul, in this section, if you notice, he says in verse 19 that the immeasurable greatness of his power is toward us who believe. It's directed to us who believe. And that's interesting because I hadn't spent much time thinking about that until I read this passage slowly. And I saw, oh, his power is working in believers right now. Usually I think, oh, God's power worked in me when he saved me, but it's actually working in me right now. And we even see that in how it sanctifies us. If you go to Ephesians 3, verses 16 and verse 20, Paul is talking about God strengthening us with power through his spirit. Why? Well, in verse 20, or actually in verse 19, it's to know Right, not just know, but know the love of Christ. So you need God's strength to comprehend Christ's love for you. Isn't that crazy? You need God's very power to get how much He loves you. That is mind blowing. But also, God's strength is working towards your sanctification. In Philippians three ten, Paul's talking about striving to know the power of his resurrection. Right? And that's Paul talking. He's, he's a Christian. Or in Colossians 1.29, Paul says he's working with the energy that God powerfully works within me. Or 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. God's power is working towards your sanctification, Christian. So if you are stuck in sin, if you are, you can't deal with that person, if your anxiety seems too much, if your circumstances are overwhelming, if you don't feel capable of doing the things that you know God is calling you to do, I want you to be encouraged by the fact that God's power, God's power, right? It's easy to, oh yeah, God's power, God's power is working. Okay, yeah, God's power, do you get that? that's that's what we got to get inside our brains because we don't see this the way we should. We don't see it with the eyes of our heart. We see it with the eyes of our brain. And we're just like, yeah, God's power is helping me be self-controlled right now. God's power is helping me trust him right now. Yeah. You have everything you need to do what God commands you to do. And if you notice, I haven't been very specific in a lot of my applications. I haven't gone a lot into, well, you need to make sure you're doing this thing five times a day, or you're making sure you're listening to this podcast, or in this situation, do this thing. And that's because this passage works in every situation, every single situation. If you know God better, if you treasure God more, if you are more enthralled by his beauty, he'll be just fine. If you focus on that, everything else will work out. If you focus on being amazed by God and loving God and being enraptured by his glory, I think you'll be okay if you lose your job. I think you'll be okay if your friends abandon you. I think you'll be okay if your parents get divorced. Are these things real? Are these things hard? Yes, I'm not trying to minimize those things. What I am saying is that if you're seeing things in the right perspective, you'll be okay because you know the glory of God and his love for you and the inheritance you have and his power that's working for you. Maybe you're thinking, what if I don't feel like this? I know some people feel like that. You seem to feel like that. But that's just not how I feel. And I know some days I don't feel like it. I don't feel like seeing God's glory. I don't feel like I cherish God's blessings. I don't feel attracted to the Bible and to the glory of God in scripture. But that's why Paul's asking God. He's praying. He's saying, God, please do this because I need you. You made my heart. You can control how I feel. If I see your glory, that will will change me. So you need to put yourself in the way of God's grace. And that, right, put yourself closer to the fire of God's word and of God's glory. And even if you don't feel like it at first, maybe it takes a while for you to warm up, that's okay. Put yourself in the way of God's glory and watch him change you. That's your your job is just to get in the right position. Get there and let God do the rest. There's a hymn that, stood out to me when I was preparing the sermon. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the first verse says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. And then the chorus, the refrain, sorry, it's a hymn, the refrain, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a glorious God you are an amazing God. You are a beautiful, wonderful, mighty, powerful, majestic God. We don't have enough words to describe how amazing you are. We just want to worship you for that and be amazed by you. And we confess that we often don't f- capture that the way we should, we don't respond to that the way we should. Uh, with our thoughts about you, with our feelings towards you, with our actions for you. We don't, we don't come close to being worthy of, of you, of your glory. So we want to come before you in dependence and humility and recognize that you have to do this for us. We can try really hard and you do use our works. We do have to put ourselves in the way of your grace but at the same time we need you to to change us we need you to grow us and so we're gonna pray with Paul that you would give us your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to apply your word and revelation to see you more clearly so that we can see you with our hearts we can see your glory clearly more clearly than we have up to this point in our lives and that that would help us to know you and to know you, and love you, and cherish you, and savor you, and be satisfied in you. We're thankful for Jesus, and we pray this all in his name. Amen.